Hey, everybody. This is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Most voters do not have a clear sense of where one layer of government ends and the next begins and whose fault it is or whose job it is to pass things like in their mind and a lot of people's minds, Joe Biden is president. Why are the things that were promised during the campaign not being delivered? You need to talk about the more bread and butter issues that actually matter to voters instead of like keeping sort of to the ideological stuff. And I think that was the biggest takeaway from Youngkin, right? It was very much like, here is the three issues that I'm running on that like anybody can care about for this stuff. All right, Alex, it is Friday, November 5th. We are recording this episode a few days after the most recent election, which most prominently featured the defeat of former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe at the hands of new GOP governor-elect of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, as well as Governor Phil Murphy's victory in New Jersey, although much more narrowly than people predicted, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But essentially what this podcast is about is what do we think the election results from Tuesday will mean for Oregon as we head into the 2022 elections? As most of our listeners will know, historically, elections that are held in odd numbered years, which are Virginia and New Jersey, are often seen as like a bellwether or a predictor of what might happen in the next year's elections as a sort of preview. So what we'll talk about a little bit today is whether or not we think it will be a preview of what's coming to Oregon and to what extent. So before I ask you, Titus, your thoughts, we'll just recap for the audience. So in we'll start with Virginia. I think Virginia got far more press and coverage than New Jersey did. But the final Real Clear Politics polling average suggested that Youngkin was going to win by 1.7 points. He ended up winning by two and a half points. Youngkin got 50.9%, McAuliffe got 48.4%. So relatively, I mean, a small but more sizable victory than some anticipated. And then in New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy was anticipated, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average, to win by 7.8 points. And as of this recording, he won by 2.3 points. So Those numbers could, of course, shift as more votes are counted over the coming weeks. As we know, sometimes it takes time to calculate all the votes. But generally speaking, what you can see is in both cases, the Republican candidates performed better than they were anticipated to. But really quickly, that also proved true down ballot. So according to 538, which is a really sophisticated political and sports analysis media company, they said that they basically ranked all the Virginia House of Delegates seats by their partisan lean. And they found that Republicans overperformed the partisan lean of their district by seven points in Virginia. And they overperformed by six points in the New Jersey Senate. So the basic range of Republican overperformance was in the five to seven points in those two states. So, Alex, given all that information and all that you've read in your analysis, what are your main takeaways from the election results in Virginia and New Jersey? Yeah, I was, I would say New Jersey was actually more surprising to me than Virginia. I thought that Youngkin was probably going to lose. I thought though it might come down to razor close margins, which we'll get into that in just a second. I was much more surprised by the New Jersey's governor race, which was not supposed to be close. Republicans didn't spend a lot of money. 
there wasn't a lot of focus on it. And like that race, that may have actually had a, a chance to turn if there was kind of more attention on that. But let's move over to Virginia first, just because I think that there's frankly more interesting results to, to talk about there. So one thing to me was that uh, was particularly issues that Youngkin had talked about. There was a lot of focus on critical race theory. There was a lot of focus on vaccine mandates, school lockdowns, and things like that. And Republicans have really struggled to, I mean, Virginia used to be a red state. I would say by basically all means now it's a blue state. And most of that has been because of, if you've ever been to the Washington DC area, there is a, I was about to say little city, but it's not such a little city anymore. There is Arlington, Virginia, which was basically a lot of people who work in Arlington basically just work in DC or they work in the big consulting firms around it. But that large population growth has dramatically shifted Virginia, which is a Southern state into the blue camp over that. Youngkin though, interestingly enough, sort of embodied the like suburban dad sort of vibe, which I think, I mean, the results basically showed he was willing to connect. He always wore the sweater vest, which I thought was a very nice little addition. But yeah, I mean, the issues that he focused on, and I would actually be curious from your perspective, kind of from looking at it from the Republican angle, it's like, the issues he focused on were the critical race theory, vaccine mandates, kind of like President Biden being bad and failing in general, which Biden's approval ratings are totally underwater right now. So I'm not surprised he went on the offensive against him. But there was like very little talk about like socialism or, you know, like we need limited government or like free markets. And I have said repeatedly on this podcast that, well, all of those things might be great policy. I don't think that they resonate at all with Oregon voters. And I frankly think that Youngkin was smart by understanding that if his message was focused around, you know, we need limited government now, we need free markets of like, that's not the things that's actually going to swing some of those suburban voters who've voted for Democrats for the past two years back into the GOP camp. So I think that the most interesting takeaway, besides sort of like the shock of the race is that the issues that he was able to focus on in a blue state in particular, that were actually able to bring out voters. And I'll dive a little bit more into the details, but I would just be kind of curious of what was your take on that when you were kind of looking at the race? Did you think that would be effective? I mean, it, it seems interesting, right, that, you know, blue state suburban voters clearly got really fired up about the CRT stuff and the vaccine mandates. So there's a there's a piece in The Atlantic by Zachary Carter that I want to read an excerpt from because I think it aligns broadly with my thinking. This is the excerpt. Republican Glenn Youngkin's victory in Tuesday's Virginia gubernatorial election was about schools. It wasn't about Donald Trump or inflation or defunding the police or Medicare for all or President Joe Biden's infrastructure agenda. It wasn't really about critical race theory or transgender rights, though those issues shaded the situation a bit by highlighting anxieties surrounding the education system. Fundamentally, the contest was about schools, specifically how many parents remain frustrated by the way public schools have handled the coronavirus pandemic. So I think I broadly agree with that with some differences. Like I do think this was widely publicized and frankly, I think taken out of context by Youngkin, but Terry McAuliffe made a comment near the end of the campaign that was essentially like a disaster. It was, yeah, it was essentially <laughs> like, I don't think parents should be deciding what kids learn in school, which I don't think, I hope he didn't mean like parents shouldn't be involved in their kids' education, which would be a ridiculous statement. I think what he was basically saying is like each parent shouldn't be not every parent can be in charge of what a school's curriculum is, right? Be, like we actually have to have a system to make those decisions. We elect a locally elected school board. We have teachers who are professionals who have degrees and experience in these fields. They're content area experts. 
But anyway, the content was was seen as alienating to a lot of parents who it seemed like he was saying should basically not be involved or that was the way it was framed by the Republicans. Um, so I do think I think that was part of it. But I will quibble a little bit here with him saying this wasn't about Joe Biden's infrastructure agenda. I, I want to look a little bit more at Democratic turnout. But I think it matters that the national media has focused on the fact that the Biden Build Back Better infrastructure plan can't get passed. And we talk about Joe Manchin and we talk about Kirsten Sinema, the two Democratic senators who are seen as like the reason why this is being held up. But I do think I do think there's something to be said for a Democratic base that just turned out in record numbers to elect Joe Biden as the president. And I also think another factor here, most voters do not have a clear sense of where one layer of government ends and the next begins and whose fault it is or whose job it is to pass things like in their mind and a lot of people's minds, we voted for a democratic president, Joe Biden is president. Why are the things that was were promised during the campaign not being delivered? And I think if Biden and Senate Democrats and House Democrats were able to pass the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill prior to the Virginia election, I do think that Terry McAuliffe would have won the election. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Yeah, I don't I don't think it honestly would have mattered that much. I mean, one thing that I learned just when I was working at Trump's PAC in 2018 is like whenever you win, the base generally like turns off for two years. Like, for example, one of the most interesting things from the 2018 election, I remember, was we would repeatedly tell voters, Republican vote, like very conservative voters. We said it's very likely that Nancy Pelosi could hold the speaker's gavel again. Like we would, we would literally test people and tell them this. And they would basically say, no way, it's not possible. That's like, that's a big issue, right? It's like, if you can't tell your people, which I think this happened a lot on the Democratic side. Is, and I mean, that's why you have these swing elections. Generally, Americans vote against the party that they just had elected in the election before. Like generally, you know, 2010 was a big year for Republicans. 2006 was a wallop for the Democrats because George Bush's re-election plus the Iraq war. 2018 was pretty good for Democrats. And then assuming 2022 will probably be pretty good for Republicans. So yeah, I don't actually know if him passing his agenda, if Biden passing the bill would have had that big of an impact on the race. Maybe it would have, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical with that. One thing though, I do want to point out from the race, which I think is really under talked about and something that I have thought about a lot in Oregon politics, especially on the GOP side of things, is that I won't dive into any of the exact specifics because I don't have the numbers on hand. If you really want to go look at the numbers, you should follow Dave Wasserman on Twitter because he does an awesome breakdown of each of the counties in Virginia. But one thing that Youngkin was able to do is he was able to rack up the margin substantially in some of the rural counties, right? So like he may win, you know, Republicans in a good year, an average year may win 65% of X rural county, but Youngkin was able to bump that up to, let's say, 72 or 73%. That's actually something that Donald Trump was able to do, too, in 2016. It's like some of these rural counties, Republicans would win them by, you know, it'd be like 69 to, you know, 31% or whatever, but Trump would win it by 77%. And like those small margins eventually start to add up, which can push you over the edge sometimes in terms of the victory, right? I mean, Trump won... Pennsylvania by, you know, a very small margin of the 2016 election. And Youngkin, I think, was able to do that really effect. Like a lot of the talk has been about the suburban voters, but like I think that a lot of the times the GOP ignores the base and in terms of turning them out. And I mean, that's something we've heard endlessly ever since I've been honestly involved in any circumstance in the Republican Party in Oregon. It's like we got to hit this 35% threshold in Multnomah County. And it's like, 
I don't know if literally anybody has done that since so, I've been alive even. That's, uh, so yeah, that's, I, I'm skeptical of that approach, but like, I think Young can show the opposite approach in terms of like, turn out the base a little bit more if you can, bump those numbers up by like 5% and you could see good results from that. So that's a good transition to the the next thing I want to talk about, which is there's a lot of speculation that what Youngkin has done is create a basically a framework that GOP candidates can use across the country in moderate to blue states, which, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk after the 2020 election that Virginia was a blue state now. Virginia is a blue state. Like they went, it went for, I think it went for Obama both times. I think it voted against Trump both times. So there's this perception like Virginia is a blue state, which I don't think is, was ever true. I think it's always been like a more complicated situation than that, but that's what, so taking that for what it is, Peggy Noonan and Axios, I think it was Jim Vandehey and Mike, they both are the co-authors of two pieces where they basically say Youngkin has created a framework that Republicans use to win elections. So Peggy Noonan's, it's uh, in the Wall Street Journal, but there's three core points to it. One is this, is, she says, this is what you have to do to win as a Republican. One, be a respectable, capable seeming person who focuses on legitimate local issues, which two examples she gives are schools and taxes. Two, don't say crazy things, period, full stop. Three, don't insult Donald Trump, but do everything you can to keep him away from you. So that's that's what her formula is. And then the Axios accumulation of what strategists have said Youngkin's secret to like threading the Trump needle, tapping into the, the strengths that being on Team Trump generates, but also avoiding the, the harm is one, embrace Trump tactics. So it talks about like exploiting the quote from Terry McAuliffe was, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So that obviously became the focus of the communication strategy for Youngkin in the final days. Then the step two, softly embrace Trump himself. Three, turn your opponent into a liberal Trump. So like basically exploit the culture wars, uh, mask requirements, transgender bathrooms, teaching on race, et cetera. And this is where they talk about suburban counties. Four, use their power against them. So basically Biden's in charge, Democrats are in charge. Everything that's wrong is their fault. And then five, they borrow from Peggy Noonan, don't say crazy things, which Youngkin, they, according to this, avoided saying things that were offensive to independent voters or suburban women, the type of people who were seen as type of voters who were seen as linchpins for Biden's victory. So, so Alex, given that context, if you were advising a GOP candidate in Oregon for governor, what do you tell them? What are their takeaways? Yeah, I, well, I, I, I want to push back a little on those lists, partially one, because I think they're ridiculous. They basically say like, do four things that really like any competent normal <laughs> candidate should. And like, that'll win you an election. It's like, well, thank, thank you for that very thought provoking. And like, I should have a wall street journal column now. I, I you know, I, I love that salary, but the thing that actually interests me the most about Youngkin, which really no one has talked about is like Breitbart was obsessed with Youngkin. Like they're like, this is the guy he's doing great stuff. CRT, like he's still pro Trump. He's combating election fraud. But like the establishment also loved Youngkin because he's, you know, he doesn't go out and say, you know, like as intense things as Trump would, like his personality is a little bit more controlled. He's much more on the cuff. He's the former CEO of the Carlisle Group, which is a massive financial services company. He had a, and I think part of it is because of the backlash towards Biden, but it's also, he was able to make both groups very happy 
which I think is something that Oregon Republicans have not been able to do in almost any election. Usually either the base is upset at somebody or it's basically sort of that the establishment is not friendly because they think that the candidate is too conservative. But I would basically say, actually, I would go back to the first point that you had brought up. If I was running for governor right now, and honestly, I don't think, I think Stan Polium probably hit on this best. I don't think the other candidates really hit on this. One of the only things I would be talking about right now is schools, because it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. I think everybody thinks that what's been happening with kids in schools has been an absolute disaster in terms of getting them into school, pulling them out of school. There's still really no clear plan of how to get them back in the classroom or like, are we going to test kids every day? Like, are kids going to sit with like little face shields and masks in school? Like, I don't think anybody likes the status quo, really, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And I think that you have to be able to, t- like, again, Oregon is not a red state. I even think it's a stretch to call it a purple state. Like, I think at most generously, we are definitely a light blue state. Like, you need to talk about the more bread and butter issues that actually matter to voters instead of keeping sort of to the ideological stuff. And I think that was the biggest takeaway from Youngkin, right? Like, he wasn't talking about socialism is evil and like free markets and we need limited government. It was very much, here is the three issues that I'm running on that like anybody can care about for this stuff. And one thing I actually wanted to focus on with Youngkin too is that, and there's some debate here of what actually happened, but some of the exit polls show that he had actually won Hispanic voters during that. I know that exit polls can be suspicious sometimes, but even- A liberal writer, which cracked me up, I forgot what publication this was. It was a left wing. They were like, this is crazy. He only won like 35 or 36% of Hispanics. And I'm like, that is really good for a Republican who is not in Florida or Texas. (laughs) Like, if, if Trump would have won those numbers in Virginia, like that state would have been a lot closer than it actually had been. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of my, my biggest takeaway basically from that. But like, I, besides, like, I'm surprised more people really aren't focusing on that right now on the, on the GOP side, to be totally honest. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that for Democrats, I think what I've read that has resonated with me is like, I do think Republicans tend to use fear in their campaigns to appeal to voters. And I think that worked in this election in terms of schools, in terms of vaccines, in terms of COVID, in terms of race. And like, I think it was about fear. And so I think it is harder for Democrats to, but we need to be, we need to be clearer about what we're for. And I think I actually agree in some way. Democrats, I obviously believe have a much stronger message when it comes to schools, but I think we need to be much more proactive about it and much more forward with how we talk about it. So for example, like I think CRT and mask mandates, like Democrats get trapped into trying to like defend the specific allegation being made against them. In some cases, like ridiculous allegations from the GOP, instead of focusing on like what we actually are doing and what our vision actually is for school. So for example, masking, social distancing, vaccines, those are actually policies that are about academics. Those are actually policies that are about keeping kids in schools and ensuring we can deliver in-person instruction. That's why we're talking about those things. So, but instead of framing it that way as like, hey, the reason why we care about this is because we think it's best for kids to get in-person instruction from a qualified teacher in a classroom with their peers. It ends up being about something, it becomes a culture war issue. And then I think like, I similarly think that about like racial justice issues in schools is to me, the reason why we talk about equity and racial justice in an educational context, among other reasons is to me, equity and racial justice is actually about academic achievement. And it's actually about 
providing opportunities for students. And it's actually about enabling students to make it to college and get a good job. Like the reason why we focus on those things is because we know in our status quo, we're not delivering on academic outcomes for certain students that we can predict based on the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status. But instead of, instead of like talking broadly about our vision, about students having opportunities to achieve and grow and learn, we end up talking about, you know, critical race theory and something that, you know, I, I did think it was like Reagan Canope, our a previous podcast guest tweeted, there's some House Democrats basically said, we're not teaching critical race theory in schools. And then Reagan <laughs> screenshotted a Lincoln High School elective class about critical race theory. And to me, it was the perfect, the exception proves the rule. If the Lincoln High School in PPS elective class is talking about critical race theory, it's actually not happening <laughs> in the in 99.99% of classrooms. But that think about all the time that has been spent talking about reading about, you know, critical race theory and having that be distorted. Like I could ask you what critical race theory means, Alex, and I think we would get a very different answer from what you know, I maybe I even I would say, but certainly what like the average voter or parent would say based on their political belief. So all that to say, I think Democrats, we need to have a lot more discipline about what we talk about and not get distracted in like uh, accepting the frame being offered by Republicans. Yeah, and it's actually one of the things too, and actually maybe even Peggy Noonan pointed this out. Maybe it was someone else, but actually you, how you just talked about the issue is actually pretty similar to how Young can talk about it. Obviously, there is some whoa, differences whoa, there, but whoa. like, <laughs> yeah, did you? Ben is actually Glenn Young kid, so uh, did, you know, Democratic Socialist beware. But, but yeah, I mean, he he basically talked about like in some circumstances, and like many of his speeches, and I read some of them of like, yeah, we need to teach the bad stuff. We need to teach the bad stuff and the good stuff, basically. But like, everybody should have an education that you know, helps with their outcome, increases their mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And then he would bash on some of the critical race theory stuff, which I heavily disagree with also. But like, no, I agree that I think if, if Democrats actually frame the issue more like that, I think it would be much more successful. And, and the, but, different, the difference between, I think, is like, I think Glenn Youngkin and Republicans generally, they don't want to talk about race. They don't want race to be part of it. They think we should all be race blind and not consider differences in race and how that might impact students. And what Democrats need to say is the reason why we talk about equity and racial justice and being culturally responsive, culturally aware, culturally sensitive is a student's racial identity impacts their learning. That's part of it. So having a pedagogy and curriculum that is like reflective of those cultural differences, that's not being race blind. In fact, that's being race conscious but it's the same thing that we would do for any student. Like if a student is from a low income home, that impacts their ability to learn in different ways. If a student is from a wealthy home, that impacts their ability to learn in different ways. The idea is we are creating an education system that helps every single student that we serve be successful. And what we shouldn't do is say is embrace Glenn Youngkin's vision, which is like we ignore race and pretend like it doesn't exist. What we should do is be thoughtful about every student we serve and their unique needs and unique challenges and unique gifts that they bring to the table and like design a system that serves, not just serves their needs, but also allows their strengths to 
thrive and take them to the next level. Anyway, I get worked up about this, but I do think like it's, it's almost as if you serve on a school board or something. <laughs> yeah, well, you, ca- you clearly mean, care about these, these these school issues, Ben. Yeah, yeah, I do care about the school issues, and I I like I think I'm partially frustrated because I do think I'll paint with a broad brush here, but I think a lot of Democrats have failed to make the case in a compelling way, and it's frustrating because. This should be our bread and butter issue. I think the Republican vision for schools is very weak. I know you'll disagree, but I think like voters, particularly voters in Oregon, I don't think that there's alignment with this sort of like privatization message that you hear from Republicans. Like I think what voters really want is a strong education system that serves every single student that walks through the doors of the school. Well, um, well actually, actually, let's let let's 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 hold on that point for a second. I'm curious from your perspective. So I've seen a lot of Republican, Oregon Republicans on Twitter. They're obviously they're very happy with the outcome, what happened in Virginia, and hopeful that it's something to come, you know, in Oregon this time around. For anyone who's read the lift off or listened to this podcast, you're aware that. Republicans did not have a great year in Oregon in 2010. We did not have a great year in 2014. No, 2010, well, 2010 was a good year for Republicans in Oregon. Ah, we still lost the governorship. Lost, you lost the governorship, but you, you Scott got Bruin. Pissed. That was really unfortunate. So, <laughs> for for you, you may have thought it was a blowout, but for us, it was, <laughs> I mean, I, I would. I don't think anyone would argue we underperformed compared to to other states across the board. Yes. Also, 2020 was a great year for Republicans down the ballot. Of course, uh, Joe Biden eventually won the election, but it was a great year down down the ballot, basically. And, you know, even though Trump is not president. But the thing is, is like, what do you, like, do you think that these same issues, and again, like people are saying, this is the playbook that you're going to run in Florida. I think that you've seen like Ron DeSantis and other Republicans in states like Pennsylvania, you know, look at some of these different issues. But like, how do you think that that's going to work in Oregon for Republicans? Like, do you think it's going to be effective or do you think that Oregon is just, again, totally a different beast and we're just going to sort of buck national trends in that way? I think Oregon's a different state for a lot of reasons. I was talking to someone, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but if you look at states like Virginia and New Jersey, it's actually not uncommon to see massive swings in like, a like, so for example, in 2009, Bob McDonnell won the governor's race with 58, 58.6% to the Democratic candidates, 41.3%. Four years later, Terry McAuliffe wins his election by two points. So that's a massive swing. And now, and then it goes back up to a 53-45 Democratic victory. And then it goes back. So like you see this up and down trend. And then same thing in Virginia, or excuse me, in New Jersey, Chris Christie won blowout elections by massive margins in a very blue state. There's almost no historical precedent in Oregon for seeing massive electoral shifts. Like basically a Democrat wins between 1% and 7% in the, in governor's races, for example. Like we, I think we, we talked about that when we did the, the episode with our two national Republican friends to talk about, like, there's a pretty standard um, set of outcomes, even in like Senate elections, like Merkley and Wyden are just winning by big margins. So a, there's little reason to believe that that sort of fluctuation could happen here. So in terms of the issues, it's a good question. A, to be candid with you, and we haven't talked to all the Republican candidates and we, we've we only talked to each of them once. So I don't like, I'm not following their races super closely. Maybe you're following them closely. I'm not sure I've seen a Republican candidate that I feel like has the same level of political acumen or talent as Glenn Youngkin, for example like the ability to to do what I, because I have to be honest, I think like what he and his campaign did was not, I think McCall's campaign made missteps like any campaign would. And that last comment I think was particularly bad. 
Um, but I do think like Youngkin ran a disciplined campaign. It was very successful. I don't know if the political dynamics of what it takes to win a primary in Oregon allows a GOP candidate to get to the general election without having, like, I think there's already been things said by a lot of candidates on the GOP side that would be very distasteful to a broader electorate, including moderate Democrats, suburban women, independent voters, et cetera. In terms of the issues resonating, I also think Democrats in Oregon have a lot to run on based on things that they passed through the legislature in the last two to seven or two to eight years, I would say, like everything from paid family leave to massive investments in education funding to like, you can actually run the environmental protection legislation, stuff that is like broadly popular. I don't know the context in Virginia, but it did seem like from a very distant observer that it wasn't super clear what the Democrats were running on there. Whereas I think Democrats in Oregon have a clear case. What will be interesting to see is how does who the democratic standard bearer is in terms of the governor's race in Oregon in 22, I think it's going to matter a lot and could have significant implications down ballot. Like if it's Tina Kotek, it's a very straightforward, like look at all the amazing things we've done in the legislature. If you elect me governor and you elect a democratic legislature, we're going to expand upon on those victories. Obviously Tobias would have a different message. Nick Kristoff would have a different message, but yeah, I think, I, I guess my short answer is it depends, but I'm not, I don't foresee I definitely am not in a place where I'm like, oh my God, the Republicans are going to win. I think it's going to be, I think it definitely could be a close election and Democrats have to take it really seriously and run really hard. But I don't know, historically speaking, there's not a ton of reason to believe that that's like imminent and going to happen here. It doesn't mean it can't. Yeah, I think that the, honestly, yeah, I mean, I don't feel too confident about the governor's race, even though I think that we have a number of very good candidates that this time around. I think that the two most interesting races to watch, depending on how the maps are finalized, will be the congressional districts. Five and six. Uh, and five and six. And it will be the most interesting, I think, if Schrader decides to run for six and that if Jamie McLeod Skinner runs as the candidate in five, like she makes it through the primary and runs. Because I think what a lot of people forget about Oregon Democrats, some of them, not all of them for sure, is like, Kurt Schrader is considered one of the most moderate Democrats in Congress. I mean, he's part of like the moderate Democrats. And even though he votes with Pelosi, I think like 80% of the time, like that's literally what's considered moderate in terms of voting score. And I mean, he's part of the Blue Dogs, or he used to be the chairman of the Blue Dog, the yes. know, Democratic Blue Dogs or whatever. The other one too is DeFazio is very progressive on some issues, but he has like definitely shown a conservative streak on others. I know that. I don't think he would say it today, but back in the day, DeFazio was actually quite a big fan of the, he would say the border fence, but we will call it the border wall for all goods and purposes. Uh, he's also, I, from my understanding, used to get like an A rating from the National Rifle Association. So DeFazio and Trader will go away at some point, right? That sort of, I think that brand of Democrat is, I think Democrats are shifting more to the left as I think many Republicans are shifting more to the right. And like, we've talked about why that's happening a number of times on this podcast, but I think it'll be really interesting if Schrader runs in six and Jay McLeod Skinner runs in five, because I think it will be really telling, for example, if Schrader easily wins election in six, which is what, like a plus four Democratic district right now. So by the Virginia trend and the New Jersey trend, someone could win in that seat, right? They only have to swing seven, they get plus three, they would win with a nice little comfortable margin. In the fifth congressional district, which I believe is plus four right now, right, they'd still be able to win by a comfortable margin. So I would be curious to see, right, like if Lori Chavez-Dreamer, for example, was able to easily 
beat some like someone like Jay McLeod Skinner, who is much further to the left than someone like Kurt Schrader, and kind of like what that will mean for the future of Oregon politics going forward. But a yeah. number of things have to happen for that scenario to even be set up. And who knows if that will even be the case. So I could totally see Schrader just being like, yeah, I'll run in the most competitive seat. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I also, yeah, I could see Schrader doing, I, yeah, I, could, it, it, I have no idea what he's going to do. I also think like, I do think it's more complex than just like liberal to conservative. Like, you know, Jamie McLeod Skinner is more liberal than Kurt Schrader. I also think she's more populist than Kurt Schrader. And I think I, it, maybe this isn't fair because Schrader's got a lot of like rural credentials, obviously, but Jamie McLeod Skinner is a rural Democrat. She's a rural candidate who ran and overperformed massively in a rural district that was Republican leaning. So I think in some ways, I do think in some ways she's a very strong, she's a strong primary candidate, but also a really strong general election candidate. The sixth to me is the more interesting, well, they're both fascinating, but I think the sixth is the more open-ended one, I would say, because like, even if Schrader runs in that district, he's going to be running with people to his left there too. I don't know if I would say that there's a clear front runner. Representative Salinas, um, Andrea Salinas, has not announced officially, but there's been lots of press about this. She's a and very- she, she could still run in five, right? Yeah, she could. I haven't heard any suggestion of that. You, you she- just you just heard it, but <laughs> yeah, but I don't think. <laughs> I, I I actually think if I'm a Democrat, like Loretta Smith, former Multnomah County Commissioner, is um, running in the sixth. I've heard that there's there's speculation about Brian Clem, former state representative, or I guess current, soon to be former, um, Representative Paul Evans, um, a couple of other sort of like more moderate, um, more Salem area um, folks. If I if I was a Democrat who had the choice of who to run against in a primary, I definitely don't think. I would choose to run against Jamie McLeod Skinner over Kurt Schrader, which sounds weird because Kurt Schrader is the incumbent, but I just think, I think he's because of all the reasons I think is vulnerable to a challenge from his left, but I don't know. I I actually have, I have no idea what to expect. This primary is going to be a very wild and unpredictable primary season for sure, which maybe that's a good place for us to end it. So I was saying, getting back to the broader point, what happened in Virginia, how will it impact Oregon? Also, like, just to, I mean, just to close, I don't think anybody knows, right? Like, for example, I remember months ago on this podcast, I had said, you were talking about being excited about Biden because he had great approval ratings, et cetera. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, he's like, I think the Afghan pullout is probably going to be a disaster. And like, that has also hammered him in the polls. And that's not really something that you could have accurately predicted would happen, you know, uh, nine, 10 months ago or whatever. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen over the next two years in terms of the issues that will pop up, right? Like there could be some really good issues for Democrats that pop up on the national stage for whatever reason that might be that like helps sort of tone down some of the, what I would say is like a red wave and makes it sort of more like a red tide. And if it's a red tide nationally, it's probably not going to have that big of an impact on Oregon. Uh, if it's a huge red wave per se. Like, I think that might be something interesting, but like, that's just the caveat to all of this is like, no one knows what's really going to happen into the future. So the pundits can literally tell you whatever they want, but nobody knows nobody anything. Knows. <laughs> so. I still hold out hope. Like I still, cause you're right. We did have that conversation on the pod and Biden was like super popular early in his term. And like, obviously I, I'm looking at it now and it says 43% approval, RCP average, 50%, 50.1% disapproval, which is actually Nets negative 7.5, which is about the Republican performance spread, um, overperformance spread. So, you know, there's a world in which 
Biden gets through his legislative agenda. He passes the infrastructure bill. He builds some momentum going into the second term. COVID gets under control. We loosen some of the restrictions on schools and Biden's popularity jumps back up into the 50s, low 60s. And all of a sudden people are grabbing onto the Biden coattails heading into 2022. Is that the most likely outcome? I don't know, probably not. But I think that's a plausible outcome. I don't think anyone would say there's no way that could happen. Um, but he needs mansion. He needs cinema. He needs, you know, <laughs> vaccines. He needs a lot of things to go right to get there. Um, but you're right. I think the the main takeaway is there's definitely lessons to be learned from Virginia and New Jersey, but certainly no way to predict their impact, especially across the country in a place like Oregon. But with that, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> we probably uh, just had everybody unsubscribe. They're like, all this babbling. <laughs> It's horrible. <laughs> yes. Uh, we will be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming with a guest. Um, we've, we've actually got a couple couple guests uh, in the works that we're getting booked up, and we're excited to bring those to you. But for those of you who made it this far in the episode, we just wanted to say thank you for listening and for supporting us and for uh, tuning in each week. We continue to see pretty steady growth in our listenership, which is exciting. Um, so we're excited to continue doing this and continue offering a space for po folks to learn about and talk about politics um, in Oregon. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you back here next week.